Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez Kassmeyer. To quote my favorite line, or at least the line I most often remember from Jim Carrey's movie The Mask, Did you miss me? I guess not. And why would you all miss me? I mean, you guys have these things called lives. Uh, You go out and you live and you enjoy yourselves and you do wonderful things that do not involve listening to me babble on about things that don't matter. But uh, to those of you who are uh, are still listening to me, I appreciate it. To those of you who did not miss me, uh, why are you still listening to this right now? And to those of you who are thinking, Jesus, I wish this guy would get a life. I have heard great things about having a life. Um, I've heard that they are a very good investment, and I'm considering uh, investing in one myself. I've done a little bit of window shopping recently, by which I mean I've gone onto my computer, which runs on Windows 10 or whatever the newest version of Windows is, and I've looked up a few things, and at the moment, uh, some of the lives out there, my favorite kind of life, uh, is a little bit out of my price range, so... Maybe I'll get a life secondhand at a Goodwill or something, or maybe I'll uh, find one in an alleyway and adopt it and, you know, try to make something of my life. I don't know. Anyway, so this is the the newly restarted Reader's Corner, episode 11, right here on the, on, on the podcast, and I wanted to take the time to introduce you to another wonderful story that uh, I'm reading again. I think the last episode that I did before I went on my little vacation, I'll talk about that a little bit more coming this Saturday, but before I left, I mentioned a book that I had read the Octavia Butler story, Speech Sounds, from, and it's this book called The Wesleyan Anthology of Science Fiction, and as I said in that review of it, that mini-review of it, it's a really, really wonderful book. I've got it in front of me as I'm You might be hearing um, me flip the pages as I'm going through it. It's a good book because it's a good place to start if you want to get into science fiction of the 20th and very, very early 21st centuries. The last author included in this is Ted Chang um, with his story Exhalation, which was published in 2008. So that's the most recent one. So it's about a... It's a little over a decade uh, out of date in terms of inclusion, but it's a, it's a pretty good collection of stories. It's definitely a good place to start if you want to get into SF as a genre. And so I thought I'd dip into it again to find another story to read to you all. And the story I ended up finding uh, this week for this return episode of the Reader's Corner, this return episode of Four Cents of Podcast, was from an author who I think, I I wish a lot more people would know about. That's the real reason I do this particular podcast, Uh, this particular episode of Four Cents of Podcast, is, is to try and introduce people to authors that 
they know about and maybe need to reappreciate or don't know about and should appreciate. And so the author in question this week is a SF writer, probably one of the most significant SF writers of the 20th century, by the name of Robert Sheckley, or Bob Sheckley, as he was known to his friends. Uh, Bob Sheckley is an astonishing writer for two reasons. Number one, he was an incredible stylist. The man never wrote a dull sentence. But number two, he achieved something that I don't think people in science fiction were able to appreciate until Douglas Adams with the Hitchhiker's Guide books and the Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency books was able to sort of bring it to a more popular audience. Largely, I think that was because Bob was publishing in pulp magazines uh, of the 50s and SF magazines, largely, because he was predominantly a short story writer, but he also wrote a couple of novels, um, some of which are well-regarded. I'll talk about one of those in, in a few seconds, but it was his short stories that most people knew him by, and it was his short stories that really brought him the greatest amount of respect. I always believe that even if you're writing in a genre that a lot of people kind of like to think of in a degrading way or have a very low opinion of as it just being popular literature of some kind, the easiest way that you can gain an acumen of literary street cred, so to speak, to prove that you're not just some hack, is to write short stories. And Robert Sheckley was an astonishingly good short story writer. And the story that I, I'm going to read to you today is a story called Specialist. But what made Sheckley so amazing that, you know, to, to get back to what I was talking about before I segued on that, was the fact that he was able to do humor in science fiction before a lot of other writers. There were a handful of authors in his generation. you, you got to remember, this is kind of golden age era SF writing, so very masculine, uh, to a certain extent very uh, engineering-oriented. But Sheckley was able to bring something that I think other authors, like, say, L. Sprague de Camp, were also able to bring to it, uh, which was humor. Humor. The ability to infuse a genre that was trying to take itself seriously, like science fiction at that time, uh, to bring to it a, a something that is often also considered kind of frivolous and, and flippant, which is humor. And Sheckley was one of the first true masters, one of the first true humorists in science fiction. A lot of other authors are able to kind of get a little sprinkle of it into their fiction if they're lucky. A few are completely incapable of doing it, or if they do, it comes across in their prose like a joke told badly. We all have that friend who, no, no matter what, maybe it's just their tone of voice, maybe it's their timing, maybe it's their attitude, I, it, there's something about them that funny just does not exude from them. Uh, funny just it, it gets on them and it, ju it just immediately springs away <laughs> like like rain off of an umbrella it just it's not part of who they are and then there are other people who are capable of doing funny really well so much so that oftentimes it's it's really difficult to figure out when they're being serious and when they're being funny um and Sheckley 
was one of those authors who was able to capture that and imbue it into his prose. And a lot of his short stories, I mean, he, he, he truly is the P.G. Woodhouse of science fiction. Um, he was just so, so incredible. And that's what makes his life, in particular, uh, rather tragic. Because when he, um, when, when, as he grew older, Sheckley, uh, who, who was a bit of a nomad, I mean, he was originally born in Brooklyn in 1928. So the tail end of the Roaring Twenties, uh, and on the verge of the, of the Great Depression of the Thirties, I mean, that was a year away. Um, I mean, he was, obviously, you know, you come of age and you grow in consciousness through that first decade of your life, so I'm not entirely sure that was his normal. But he finally started kind of going around the world at a certain point, and unfortunately, the downside to that is that he oftentimes got himself involved in sort of a, um, a bit of a drug culture, going from place to place. And to quote Neil Gaiman, who is a great admirer of Sheckley's, uh, and I'll mention one thing uh, before we, we, we actually get to the story. Neil thought that Robert Sheckley was easily one of the best short story writers, and had he not fried his brain on recreational pharmaceuticals, would have easily counted among some of the, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, period. Period. And from getting... Getting a, a praise like that from Neil Gaiman, you take that shit seriously because Neil knows his stuff. Neil is a walking encyclopedia of literary knowledge, especially when it comes to all things speculative, um, mythic, and fantasy. The man just because he's he spent his childhood in libraries. He was basically <laughs> he, was, he he ran up the stacks, as they say, uh, and and he's he's he's. So brilliant. So I always take his word on that. And, and he actually, funny story about this. You can find a video of him saying this on YouTube. It was one of the Google Talks. I don't even know if Google still does Google Talks. I wish they did, so I could have the opportunity of maybe getting invited to one. But one of the very, very early ones, back when Google didn't even own YouTube yet. So the 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 uh, it was for um, fragile things for Fragile Things, which I think was Neil's first or second book of short stories and poems. One of those two. No, Smoke and Mirrors was the first thing, so Fragile Things would have been his second big collection. There we go. Um, and somebody asked him about Robert Sheckley because, of course, Neil has a connection to Douglas Adams having written The Hitchhiker's the Don't Panic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion with Douglas, or for Douglas, or in addition to Douglas, as a supplementary piece of work to Hitchhiker, and that whole s sequence, and somebody asked him about Robert Sheckley's Dimension of Miracles. This is the novel in question that I was hinting at. Uh, Dimension of Miracles, if you read it before knowing anything about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you would have assumed that Douglas Adams basically took this somewhat obscure science fiction novel and uh, s sort of uh, pilfered it. I mean, 
<laughs> just taken every single thing that worked in this book, uh, repurposed it to his own ends, added a certain kind of British dialect of English, because of course, Hitchhiker's Guide, even though it, it travels well and it's very popular here in the States, um, you know, because it, as Oscar Wilde said, English and England and America are two countries divided by a common language. Uh, it, it's it, if you had read it in isolation and then read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you would have assumed that Douglas Adams had basically pulled off the ultimate con job of uh, of literary plagiarism. In some ways, I mean, he didn't because Adams actually never read Dimension of Miracles until after Hitchhiker was published. And also, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy started out as a radio play, a radio series, which was then adapted into a novel. You know, because writers were lazy. <laughs> if we know something works in one medium, we're going to try and translate it into another medium so we can make more money. As Alan Moore put it, you're trying to get more money for old rope. <laughs> so... And, and immediately when, when Douglas apparently read this, this is something that Neil says in this talk, when he read this, he was slightly chagrined. He couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, everybody was going to think that he was a total, all the hardcore sci-fi nerds are going to think that he, he pilloried, uh, no, pilfered uh, Bob Sheckley and didn't pay homage to him, even though he was writing this thing in complete ignorance of, of Robert Sheckley. But that's the book that I wanted to talk about very briefly, is Dimension of Miracles. To bring this back to, to Sheckley and Neil Gaiman and their relationship, because again, Gaiman had enormous respect for Sheckley. And as Sheckley aged, I mean, he lived until 2005. So he lived a, a pretty, he, he lived a fairly long life. Um, he finally kind of got off the drugs and was able uh, to... He was able to finally get his mojo back. Because the thing of it is, is that uh, writers, until they're they're really, truly, permanently handicapped in some way, and I don't use that term I I offensively. I, I say it, you know, because it's it's what I have at hand. Um, until something truly happens that takes away their ultimate tool for writing, which is their mind. Because writing is an inherently cerebral process. Even if you temporarily kind of lose it through the haze of drugs and alcohol, if you can get off that stuff, which will truly screw up your synapses if you do it for too long, if you get off that stuff and you actually return to the discipline of writing, you can get it back. And Sheckley, towards the end of his life, was slowly getting it back. And it was only, you know, in 2005 uh, that he lost it permanently because he passed away. He passed away. But he was slowly getting it back, which is, you know, th th that's the admirable thing about him. Even though he, you know, he lived a kind of Rabelaisian life, he traveled a lot, he was married five times, he did all those drugs, he was still dedicated to his craft. And even if you can't respect him necessarily as a human being for living this life that, you know, when you lay it out in those details that I just gave you, 
um, sounds very irresponsible, but Dostoevsky lived that kind of life, and Dostoevsky is Dostoevsky, um, and Bob Sheckley will always be Bob fucking Sheckley. The only downside is the fact that Bob Sheckley never got the SFWA Grandmastership. Died in 05, never got it. It's an award that can only go to living writers who are masters of the craft. And it's the it's one of the great shames that it never got to him in time. It also never got to people like Bob Block, uh, which is also a great shame. But these things happen. Um, the important thing is the work. And the work is still here, the work is still with us, the work can still be read, you can still read it now. Um, to return to Dimension of Miracles, right now on Audible, I don't know how Neil Gaiman managed to do this, but he has been doing a kind of series of special audiobooks where a new foreword by him, which I'm assuming he's either writing or he's speaking extemporaneously, I know because I've got this one, uh, Neil introduces you to a special audible original recording of a particular audio book. In this case, it's Dimension of Miracles, which is then paired with a particular reader, usually a famous actor. In this case, it's the comedian John Hodgman, who some of you may know as the voice of the of the other of the father and the other father from the movie Coraline, and also the PC from the Apple versus PC ads. He's that guy, that, that sort of, not gnomish, but this sort of fastidious, well-dressed, bespectacled gentleman who sort of looks more like an accountant than a comedian, but that's the point. Um, he's, he's a very, very nice man, and he's very funny, and he gives it all when he's doing Dimension of Miracles. Uh, and I highly recommend that you go and read that, because it is Bob Sheckley's best-loved novel, easily. And it's one of his best ones, and like I said, it was Hitchhiker before Hitchhiker was Hitchhiker. And he... He created a masterpiece without realizing it. And I highly And just, if you like science fiction, if you like reading literature that has an enormous amount of humor imbued into it, I strongly urge you to find that audible recording and to listen to it because it's incredible and you can listen to Neil's wonderful little foreword to it as well um, and it gives you an excuse to listen to Neil Gaiman and John Hodgman for you know a couple of hours it's great uh, so there we go for the time being this is going to be Robert Sheckley's short story specialist this is a weird story but because Sheckley was a humorist and an absurdist go figure um, so what can I tell you about the story beforehand? I think I will say this. The story specialist is about a whole bunch of aliens who are all specialists at what they do. But when they work in tandem with each other, they become something more. They become an entity capable of traversing the galaxy. And then something bad happens. And all of a sudden, they need help to get home. And they need to find another specialist. And guess what that specialist ends up being? Well, 
I'll let you guess. In the meantime, this is it, Robert Checkley's wonderful short story from 1953, The Specialist. Enjoy. Specialist by Robert Checkley. The photon storm struck without warning, pouncing upon the ship from behind a bank of giant red stars. I barely had time to flash a last-second warning through Talker before it was upon them. It was Talker's third journey into deep space, and his first light-pressure storm. He felt a sudden pang of fear as the ship yawned violently, caught the force of the wave front, and careened end for end. Then the fear was gone, replaced by a strong pulse of excitement. Why should he be afraid? He asked himself. Hadn't he been trained for just this sort of emergency? He had been talking to Feeder when the storm hit, but he cut off the conversation abruptly. He hoped Feeder would be all right. It was the youngster's first deep space trip. The wire-like filaments that made up most of Talker's body were extended throughout the ship. Quickly, he withdrew all except the ones linking him to eye, engine, and the walls. This was strictly their job now. The rest of the crew would have to shift for themselves until the storm was over. I had flattened his dislike body against a wall, and had one seeing organ extended outside the ship. For greater concentration, the rest of his seeing organs were collapsed, clustered against his body. Through I's seeing organ, Talker watched the storm. He translated I's purely visual image into a direction for Engine, who shoved the ship around to meet the waves. At appreciably the same time, Talker translated direction into velocity for the walls, who stiffened to meet the shocks. The coordination was swift and sure. I measuring the waves, Talker relaying the messages to engine and walls, engine driving the ship nose first into the waves, and walls bracing to meet the shock. Talker forgot any fear he might have had in the swiftly functioning teamwork. He had no time to think. As the ship's communication system, he had to translate and flash his messages at top speed, coordinating information and directing action. In a matter of minutes, the storm was over. All right, Talker said. Let's see if there was any damage. His filaments had become tangled during the storm, but he untwisted and extended them through the ship, plucking everyone into circuit. Engine, I'm fine. Engine said, "The tremendous old fellow had dampened his plates during the storm, easing down the atomic explosions in his stomach. No storm could catch an experienced spacer like Engine unaware. Walls." The walls reported one by one, and this took a long time. There were almost a thousand of them, thin, rectangular fellows making up the entire skin of the ship. Naturally, they had reinforced their edges during the storm, giving the whole ship resiliency. 
but one or two were dented badly. Doctor announced that he was all right. He removed Talker's filament from his head, taking himself out of circuit, and went to work on the dented walls. Made mostly of hands, Doctor had clung to an accumulator during the storm. Let's go a little faster now, Talker said, remembering that there was still the problem of determining where they were. He opened the circuit to the four accumulators. How are you? he asked. There was no answer. The accumulators were asleep. They had had their receptors open during the storm and were bloated on energy. Talker twitched his filaments around them, but they didn't stir. Let me, Feeder said. Feeder had taken quite a beating before planting his suction cups to a wall, but his cockiness was intact. He was the only member of the crew who never needed doctor's attention. His body was quite capable of repairing itself. He scuttled across the floor on a dozen or so tentacles and booted the nearest accumulator. The big conical storage unit opened one eye, then closed it again. Feeder kicked him again, getting no response. He reached for the accumulator's safety valve and drained off some of the energy. Stop that, the accumulator said. Then wake up and report, Talker told him. The accumulators said testily that they were all right, as any fool could see. They had been anchored to the floor during the storm. The rest of the inspection went quickly. Thinker was fine, and I was ecstatic over the beauty of the storm. There was only one casualty. Pusher was dead. Bipedal, he didn't have the stability of the rest of the crew. The storm had caught him in the middle of a floor, thrown him against a stiffened wall, and broken several of his important bones. He was beyond doctor's skill to repair. They were silent for a while. It was always serious when a part of the ship died. The ship was a cooperative unit composed entirely of the crew. The loss of any member was a blow to all the rest. I crawled to a wall and extended a seeing organ outside. The walls let it through, then sealed around it. I's organ pushed out far enough from the ship so that he could view the entire sphere of stars. The picture traveled through Talker, who gave it to Thinker. Thinker lay in one corner of the room, a great shapeless blob of protoplasm. Within him were all the memories of his space-going ancestors. He considered the picture, compared it rapidly with others stored in his cells, and said, No galactic planets within reach. Talker automatically translated for everyone. It was what they had feared. I, with Thinker's help, calculated that they were several hundred light-years off their course, on the galactic periphery. Every crew member knew what that meant. Without a pusher to boost the ship to a multiple of the speed of light, they would never get home. The trip back without a pusher would take longer than most of their lifetimes. What would you suggest? Talker asked Thinker. This was too vague a question for the literal-minded Thinker. 
he asked to have it rephrased. What would be our best line of action, Talker asked, to get back to a galactic planet? Thinker needed several minutes to go through all the possibilities stored in his cells. In the meantime, Doctor had patched the walls and was asking to be given something to eat. In a little while, we'll all eat, Talker said, twitching his tendrils nervously. Even though he was the second youngest crew member, only Feeder was younger, the responsibility was largely on him. This was still an emergency. He had to coordinate information and direct action. One of the walls suggested that they get good and drunk. This unrealistic solution was vetoed at once. It was typical of the wall's attitude, however. They were fine workers and good shipmates, but happy-go-lucky fellows at best. When they returned to their home planets, they would probably blow all their wages on a spree. Loss of the ship's pusher cripples the ship for sustained faster-than-light speeds, Thinker began without preamble. The nearest galactic planet is 405 light-years off. Talker translated all this instantly along his wave packet body. Two courses of action are open. First, the ship can proceed to the nearest galactic planet under atomic power from engine. This will take approximately 200 years. Engine might still be alive at this time, although no one else will. Second, locate a primitive planet in this region, upon which are latent pushers. Find one and train him. Have him push the ship back to galactic territory. Thinker was silent, having given all the possibilities he could find in the memories of his ancestors. They held a quick vote and decided upon Thinker's second alternative. There was no choice, really. It was the only one which offered them any hope of getting back to their homes. All right, Talker said. Let's eat. I think we all deserve it. The body of the dead pusher was shoved into the mouth of Engine, who consumed it at once, breaking down the atoms to energy. Engine was the only member of the crew who lived on atomic energy. For the rest, Feeder dashed up and loaded himself from the nearest accumulator. He then transformed the food within him into the substances each member ate. His body chemistry changed, altered, adapted, making the different foods for the crew. I lived entirely on a complex chlorophyll chain. Feeder reproduced this for him, then went over to give Talker his hydrocarbons and the walls their chlorine compound. For Doctor, he made a facsimile of a silicon fruit that grew on Doctor's native planet. Finally, feeding was over and the ship back in order. The accumulators were stacked in a corner, blissfully sleeping again. I was extending his vision as far as he could, shaping his main seeing organ for high-powered telescopic reception. Even in this emergency, I couldn't resist making verses. He announced that he was at work on a new narrative poem called Peripheral Glow. No one wanted to hear it, so I fed it to Thinker, who stored everything, good or bad, right or wrong. 
engine never slipped. Filled to the brim on pusher, he shoved the ship along at several times the speed of light. The walls were arguing amongst themselves about who had been the drunkest during their last leave. Talker decided to make himself comfortable. He released his hold on the walls and swung in the air, his small round body suspended by his crisscross network of filaments. He thought briefly about Pusher. It was strange. Pusher had been everyone's friend, and now he was forgotten. That wasn't because of indifference. It was because the ship was a unit. The loss of a member was regretted, but the important thing was for the unit to go on. The ship raced through the suns of the periphery. Thinker laid out a search spiral, calculating their odds on finding a pusher planet at roughly four to one. In a week, they found a planet of primitive walls. Dropping low, they could see the leathery rectangular fellows basking in the sun, crawling over rocks, stretching themselves thin in order to float in the breeze. All the ship's walls heaved a sigh of nostalgia. It was just like home. These walls on the planet hadn't been contacted by a galactic team yet, and were still unaware of their great destiny, to join the vast cooperation of the galaxy. There were plenty of dead worlds in the spiral, and worlds too young to bear life. They found a planet of talkers. The talkers had extended their spidery communication lines across half a continent. Talker looked at them eagerly through eye. A wave of self-pity washed over him. He remembered home, his family, his friends. He thought of the tree he was going to buy when he got back. For a moment, Talker wondered what he was doing here, part of a ship in a far corner of the galaxy. He shrugged off the mood. They were bound to find a pusher planet if they looked long enough. At least, he hoped so. There was a long stretch of arid worlds as the ship speeded through the unexplored periphery, then a planet full of primeval engines swimming in a radioactive ocean. This is rich territory, Feeder said to Talker. Galactic should send a contact party here. They probably will after we get back, Talker said. They were good friends, above and beyond the all-enveloping friendship of the crew. It wasn't only because they were the youngest crew members, although that had something to do with it. They both had the same kind of functions, and that made for a certain rapport. Talker translated languages, Feeder transformed foods. Also, they looked somewhat alike. Talker was a central core with radiating filaments. Feeder was a central core with radiating tentacles. Talker thought that Feeder was the next most aware being on the ship. He was never really able to understand how some of the others carried on the processes of consciousness. More suns, more planets. Engines started to overheat. Usually, engine was used only for taking off and landing, and for fine maneuvering in a planetary group. Now, he had been running continuously for weeks, both over and under the speed of light. The strain was telling on him. Feeder, with doctor's help, rigged a cooling system for him. 
It was crude, but it had to suffice. Feeder rearranged nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen atoms to make a coolant for the system. Doctor diagnosed a long rest for engine. He said that the gallant old fellow couldn't stand the strain for more than a week. The search continued, with the crew's spirits gradually dropping. They all realized that pushers were rather rare in the galaxy as compared to the fertile walls and engines. The walls were getting pockmarked from interstellar dust. They complained that they would need a full beauty treatment when they got home. Talker assured them that the company would pay for it. Even I was getting bloodshot from staring into space so continuously. They dipped over another planet. Its characteristics were flashed to Thinker, who mulled over them. Closer, they could make out the forms. Pushers! Primitive pushers! They zoomed back into space to make plans. Feeder produced 23 different kinds of intoxicants for a celebration. The ship wasn't fit to function for three days. Everyone ready now? Talker asked, a bit fuzzy. He had a hangover that burned all along his nerve ends. What a drunk he had been thrown. He had a vague recollection of embracing Engine and inviting him to share his tree when they got home. He shuddered at the idea. The rest of the crew were pretty shaky too. The walls were letting air leak into the ship. They were just too wobbly to seal their edges properly. Doctor had passed out. But the worst off was Feeder. Since his system could adapt to any type of fuel except atomic, he had been sampling every batch he made, whether it was an unbalanced iodine, pure oxygen, or a supercharged ester. He was really miserable. His tentacles, usually a healthy aqua, were shot through with orange streaks. His system was working furiously, purging itself of everything, and Feeder was suffering the effects of the purge. The only sober ones were Thinker and Engine. Thinker didn't drink, which was unusual for a spacer, though typical of Thinker, and Engine couldn't. They listened while Thinker reeled off some astounding facts. From eyes' pictures of the planet's surface, Thinker had detected the presence of metallic construction. He put forth the alarming suggestion that these pushers had constructed a mechanical civilization. That's impossible, three of the walls said flatly, and most of the crew were inclined to agree with them. All the metal they had ever seen had been buried in the ground or lying around in worthless oxidized chunks. Do you mean that they make things out of metal? Talker demanded. Out of just plain dead metal? What could they make? They couldn't make anything, Feeder said positively. It would break down constantly. I mean, metal doesn't know when it's weakening. But it seemed to be true. I magnified his pictures and everyone could see that the pushers had made vast shelters, vehicles, and other articles from inanimate material. The reason for this was not readily apparent, but it wasn't a good sign. However, the really hard part was over. The pusher planet had been found. All that remained was the relatively easy job of convincing a native pusher. 
That shouldn't be too difficult. Talker knew that cooperation was the keystone of the galaxy, even among primitive peoples. The crew decided not to land in a populated region. Of course, there was no reason not to expect a friendly greeting, but it was the job of a contact team to get in touch with them as a race. All they wanted was an individual. Accordingly, they picked out a sparsely populated landmass, drifting while the side of the planet was dark. They were able to locate a solitary pusher almost at once. I adapted his vision to see in the dark, and they followed the pusher's movements. He lay down, after a while, beside a small fire. Thinker told them that this was a well-known resting habit of pushers. Just before dawn, the walls opened, and Feeder, Talker, and Doctor came out. Feeder dashed forward and tapped the creature on the shoulder. Talker followed with a communication tendril. The pusher opened his seeing organs, blinked them, and made movement with his eating organs. Then he leaped to his feet and started to run. The three crew members were amazed. The pusher hadn't even waited to find out what the three of them wanted. Talker extended a filament rapidly and caught the pusher fifty feet away by a limb. The pusher fell. Treat him gently, Feeder said. He might be startled by our appearance. He twitched his tendrils at the idea of a pusher. One of the strangest sights in the galaxy, with his multiple organs, being startled at someone else's appearance. Feeder and Doctor scurried at, to the fallen pusher, picked him up, and carried him back to the ship. The walls sealed again. They released the pusher and prepared to talk. As soon as he was free, the pusher sprang to his limbs and ran at the place where the walls had sealed. He pounded against them frantically, his eating organ open and vibrating. Stop that, the wall said. He bulged and the pusher tumbled to the floor. Instantly, he jumped up and started to run forward. Stop him, Talker said. He might hurt himself. One of the accumulators woke up enough to roll into the pusher's path. The pusher fell, got up again, and ran on. Talker had his filaments in the front of the ship also, and he caught the pusher in the bow. The pusher started to tear at his tendrils, and Talker let go hastily. Plug him into the communication system, Feeder shouted. Maybe we can reason with him. Talker advanced a filament toward the pusher's head, waving it in the universal sign of communication. But the pusher continued his amazing behavior, jumping out of the way. He had a piece of metal in his hand, and he waved it frantically. What do you think he's going to do with that? Feeder asked. The pusher started to attack the side of the ship, pounding at one of the walls. The wall stiffened instinctively, and the metal snapped. Leave him alone, Talker said. Give him a chance to calm down. Talker consulted with Thinker, but they couldn't decide what to do about the pusher. He wouldn't accept communication. Every time Talker extended a filament, the pusher showed all signs of violent panic. Temporarily, it was an impasse. Thinker vetoed the plan of finding another pusher on the planet. He considered this pusher's behavior typical. Nothing would be gained by approaching another. Also, a planet was supposed to be contacted only by a contact team. 
If they couldn't communicate with this pusher, they never would with another on the planet. I think I know what the trouble is, I said. He crawled on an accumulator. These pushers have evolved a mechanical civilization. Consider for a moment how they went about it. They developed the use of their fingers, like doctor, to shape metal. They utilized their seeing organs, like myself, and probably countless other organs. He paused for effect. These pushers have become unspecialized. They argued over it for several hours. The walls maintain that no intelligent creature could be unspecialized. It was unknown in the galaxy. But the evidence was before them. The pusher cities, their vehicles. This pusher, exemplifying the rest, seemed capable of a multitude of things. He was able to do everything except push. Thinker supplied a partial explanation. This is not a primitive planet. It is relatively old and should have been in the cooperation thousands of years ago. Since it was not, the pushers upon it were robbed of their birthright, their ability, their speciality was to push. But there was nothing to push. Naturally, they have developed a deviant culture. Exactly what this culture is, we can only guess. But on the basis of the evidence, there is reason to believe that these pushers are uncooperative. Thinker had a habit of uttering the most shattering statement in the quietest possible way. It is entirely possible, Thinker went on inexorably, that these pushers will have nothing to do with us, in which case our chances are approximately 283 to 1 against finding another pusher planet. We can't be sure he won't cooperate, Talker said, until we get him into communication. He found it almost impossible to believe that any intelligent creature would refuse to cooperate willingly. But how? Feeder asked. They decided upon a course of action. Doctor walked slowly up to the pusher, who backed away from him. In the meantime, Talker extended a filament outside the ship, around and in again behind the pusher. The pusher backed against the wall, and Talker shoved the filament through the pusher's head into the communication socket in the center of his brain. The pusher collapsed. When he came to, Feeder and Doctor had to hold the pusher's limbs, or he would have ripped out the communication line. Talker exercised his skill in learning the pusher's language. It wasn't too hard. All pusher languages were of the same family, and this was no exception. Talker was able to catch enough surface thoughts to form a pattern. He tried to communicate with the pusher. The pusher was silent. I think he needs food, Feeder said. They remembered that it had been almost two days since they had taken the pusher on board. Feeder worked up some standard pusher food and offered it. My God, a steak, the pusher said. The crew cheered along Talker's communication circuits. The pusher had said his first words. Talker examined the words and searched his memory. He knew about 200 pusher languages and many more simple variations. He found that this pusher was speaking across between two pusher tongues. 
After the pusher had eaten, he looked around. Talker caught his thoughts and broadcast them to the crew. The pusher had a queer way of looking at the ship. He saw it as a riot of colors. The walls undulated. In front of him was something resembling a gigantic spider colored black and green, with his web running all over the ship and into the heads of all the creatures. He saw I as a strange naked little animal, something between a skinned rabbit and an egg yolk, whatever those things were. Talker was fascinated by the new perspective of the pusher's mind gave him. He had never seen things that way before, but now that the pusher was pointing it out, I was a pretty funny-looking creature. They settled down to communication. What the hell are you things? the pusher asked, much calmer now than he had been during the two days. Why did you grab me? Have I gone nuts? No, Talker said, you are not psychotic. We are a galactic trading ship. We were blown off course by a storm and our pusher was killed. Well, what does that have to do with me? We would like you to join our crew, Talker said, to be our new pusher. The pusher thought it over after the situation was explained to him. Talker could catch the feeling of conflict in the pusher's thoughts. He hadn't decided whether to accept this as a real situation or not. Finally, the pusher decided that he wasn't crazy. Look, boys, he said, I don't know what you are or how this makes sense. I have to get out of here. I'm on furlough, and if I don't get back soon, the U.S. Army is going to be very interested. Talker asked the pusher to give him more information about Army, and he fed it to Thinker. These pushers engage in personal combat, was Thinker's conclusion. But why? Talker asked. Sadly, he admitted to himself that Thinker might have been right. The pusher didn't show many signs of willingness to cooperate. I'd like to help you lads out, Pusher said, but I don't know where you get the idea that I could push anything this size. You'd need a whole division of tanks just to budget. Do you approve of these wars? Talker asked, getting a suggestion from Thinker. Nobody likes war. Not those who have to do the dying, at least. Then why do you fight them? The pusher made a gesture with his eating organ, which I picked up and sent to Thinker. It's kill or be killed. You guys know what war is, don't you? We don't have any war, Talker said. You're lucky, the pusher said bitterly. We do. Plenty of them. Of course, Talker said. He had the full explanation from Thinker now. Would you like to end them? Of course I would. Then come with us. Be our pusher. The pusher stood up and walked up to an accumulator. He sat down on it and doubled the ends of his upper limbs. How the hell can I stop all wars, the pusher demanded, even if I went to the big shots and told them. You won't have to, Talker said. All you have to do is come with us. Push us close to our base. Galactic will send a contact team to your planet. That will end your wars. The hell you say? The pusher replied. You boys are stranded here, huh? Good enough. No monsters are going to take over Earth? Bewildered, Talker tried to understand the reasoning. 
Had he said something wrong? Was it possible that the pusher didn't understand him? I thought you wanted to end wars, Tonker said. Sure I do, but I don't want anyone making us stop. I'm no traitor. I'd rather fight. No one will make you stop. You will just stop because there will be no further need for fighting. Do you know why we're fighting? It's obvious. Yeah. What's your explanation? You pushers have been separated from the mainstream of the galaxy, Tonker explained. You have your specialty, pushing, but nothing to push. Accordingly, you have no real jobs. You play with things, metal, inanimate objects, but find no real satisfaction. Robbed of your true vocation, you fight from sheer frustration. Once you find your place in the galactic cooperation, and I assure you it is an important place, your fighting will stop. Why should you fight, which is an, a natural occupation, when you can push? Also, your mechanical civilization will end since there will be no need for it. The pusher shook his head in what Talker guessed was a gesture of confusion. What is this pushing? Talker told him as best he could. Since the job was out of his scope, he had only a general idea of what a pusher did. You mean to say that that is what every Earthman should be doing? Of course, Talker said. It is your great speciality. The pusher thought about it for several minutes. I think you want a physicist or a mentalist or something. I could never do anything like that. I'm a junior architect. And besides, well, it's difficult to explain. But Talker had already caught Pusher's objection. He saw a Pusher female in his thoughts. No, two, three. And he caught a feeling of loneliness, strangeness. The Pusher was filled with doubts. He was afraid. When we reach Galactic, Tonker said, hoping it was the right thing, you can meet other pushers, pusher females too. All you pushers look alike, so you should become friends with them. As far as loneliness in the ship goes, it just doesn't exist. You don't understand the cooperation yet. No one is lonely in the cooperation. The pusher was still considering the idea of there being other pushers. Talker couldn't understand why he was so startled at that. The galaxy was filled with pushers, feeders, talkers, and many other species endlessly duplicating. I can't believe that anybody could end all war, pusher said. How do I know you're not lying? Talker felt as if he had been struck in the core. Thinker must have been right when he said these pushers would be uncooperative. Was it going to be the end of Talker's career? Were he and the rest of the crew going to spend the rest of their lives in space because of the stupidity of a bunch of pushers? Even thinking this, Talker was able to feel sorry for the pusher. It must be terrible, he thought, doubting, uncertain, never trusting anyone. If these pushers didn't find their place in the galaxy, they would exterminate themselves. Their place in the cooperation was long overdue. What can I do to convince you? Talker asked. In despair, he opened all the circuits to the pusher. He let the pusher see engine's good-natured gruffness. 
The devil may care humor in the walls. He showed him eyes, poetic attempts, and theater's cocky good nature. He opened his own mind and showed the pusher a picture of his home planet, his family, the tree he was planning to buy when he got home. The pictures told the story of all of them, from different planets representing different ethics united by a common bond, the galactic cooperation. The pusher watched it all in silence. After a while, he shook his head. The thought accompanying the gesture was uncertain, weak, but negative. Talker told the walls to open. They did, and the pusher stared in amazement. You may leave, Talker said. Just remove the communication line and go. What will you do? We will look for another pusher planet. Where? Mars? Venus? We don't know. All we can do is hope there is another in this region. The pusher looked at the opening, then back at the troop. He hesitated, and his face screwed up in a grimace of indecision. All that you showed me was true. No answer was necessary. All right, the pusher said suddenly. I'll go. I'm a damned fool, but I'll go. If this means what you say, it must mean what you say. Talkers saw that the agony of the pusher's decision had forced him out of contact with reality. He believed that he was in a dream where decisions were easy and unimportant. There's just one little trouble, Pusher said, with the lightness of hysteria. Boys, I'll be damned if I know how to push. You said something about faster than light. I can't even run the mile in an hour. Of course you can push, Talker assured him, hoping he was right. He knew what a Pusher's abilities were, but this one... Just try it. Sure, Pusher agreed. I'll probably wake up out of this anyhow. They sealed the ship for takeoff while Pusher talked to himself. Funny, Pusher said. I thought a camping trip would be a nice way to spend a furlough, and all I do is get nightmares. Engine boosted the ship into the air. The walls were sealed, and I was guiding them away from the planet. We're in space now. Talker said, listening to the pusher. He hoped his mind hadn't cracked. I and Thinker will give a direction. I'll transmit it to you, and you push along it. You're crazy, pusher mumbled. You must have the wrong planet. I wish you nightmares would go away. You're in the cooperation now, Talker said desperately. There's the direction. Push. The pusher didn't do anything for a moment. He was slowly emerging from his fantasy, realizing that he wasn't in a dream after all. He felt the cooperation. I to thinker, thinker to talker, talker to pusher, all intercoordinated with walls and with each other. What is this? Pusher asked. He felt the oneness of the ship, the great warmth, the closeness achieved only in the cooperation. He pushed. Nothing happened. Try again, Tonker begged. Pusher searched his mind. He found a deep well of doubt and fear. Staring into it, he saw his own tortured face. Thinker illuminated it for him. Pushers had lived with this doubt and fear for centuries. Pushers had fought through fear, 
killed through doubt. That was where the pusher organ was, human, specialist, pusher. He entered fully into the crew, merged with them, threw mental arms around the shoulders of thinker and talker. Suddenly, the ship shot forward at eight times the speed of light. It continued to accelerate. As a final word uh, about this story and about Sheckley in general and his work, um, one of the things that I find kind of interesting about his prose is that in many, many cases, he breaks a couple of the most commonly repeated rules when it comes to writing. Um, The biggest one is uh, his use of passive voice. Uh, the passive voice, for those of you who don't know anything about writing or don't care, uh, I assume that's the vast majority of you uh, who are listening to this, but passive voice is often considered a sign of weak writing. It's often, there's something about it that lags and drags the pace of the prose, and if you're not capable of writing almost solely in active voice, and there's something wrong with you. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with passive voice, necessarily. It's a stylistic choice. Um, Frequently, in fact, you can find it most often, most often used effectively in oratory. Uh, If you've ever read or ever listened to some of Winston Churchill's greatest speeches given during World War II, you will find instances of passive voice used throughout that, mainly because passive voice is something that I think comes from the spoken word that then makes its way into the written word and is often considered uh, weaker by comparison. I think you can also find it in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in certain spots. Um, it's, it's just something that sounds very natural to the ear, but seems very clunky and very slow to the eye. But Sheckley, again, proving what a master writer he is, is able to use it and you don't even notice it. But a good example of it is that, in in this story in particular, is that sentence very close to the beginning of the story where we're given that first insight into what Talker's body looks like. Uh, And we're describing the wire filaments. Let me reread that to you. The wire-like filaments that made up most of Talker's body were extended throughout the ship. Were extended. Now that verb combination, you've got two verbs there. Were, which is the, uh, which is a passive form of to be, and extended, which of course is the past tense form of extend, uh, to stretch, to meh, uh, in various directions. Uh, When you've got those two together, you've got a perfect example of passive voice. Now, a normal writer, or a writer who's incredibly sensitive to the 
presence of passive voice in their work. This is something that I think George Orwell charged writers with trying to avoid. Um, you know, be active when you can and expunge passive voice as much as you can from your prose. Because what it does is it it switches around the subject and the verb. So in this case, no, the subject and the object. Excuse me, the subject and the object. I'm trying to remember my grammar,、uh, my rules of grammar, which I did not learn until I was a sophomore in college and have summarily pretty much forgotten altogether. Because <laughs> I do it on instinct at this point. It's very hard for me to to bring it.、Uh, To to bring it to mind and then to consciously explain it in language, but in this case, the wire filaments, the 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 subject of this sentence technically is Talker's body. We're talking about Talker. We're talking about him. We're looking at his particular physical form,、uh, and the wire filaments are a part of that. And so he could have easily. Written this sentence as, and I'm I'm going to do something very awful. I'm going to actually rewrite Bob Sheckley. He could have easily written the sentence expunging that passive voice、uh, by rewriting it as something like、um, Talker extended the wire-like filaments that made up most of his body throughout the ship. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Both of them work pretty pretty decently as sentences. But the thing of it is, the thing that Sheckley was trying to do, because this is this is where passive voice can come into play and can actually be a pretty useful tool if you're smart, at least in fiction, is that he's trying to draw attention not to Talker's body, but he's trying to draw attention to what Talker looks like. So he's trying to draw attention to the fact that Talker is not a human, because we're. We're introduced to these characters with these strange nouns, very general nouns, that we then kind of have to disabuse ourselves of uh, uh, of being what we think they are. Because when we think I, we all think a giant eyeball. When we think talker, well, what the hell is a talker? A talker is normally somebody that you want to avoid if you're in a public space because they're annoying. Um, and then, of course, you've got characters like you know the ship yawned, and you know you've got feeder. What the hell is a feeder? What's going on here? This is the way that Sheckley slowly lulls us into this situation, because automatically you know that we're not dealing with humans here. We clearly can't be dealing with humans. Who would name their baby I? Who would name their baby Talker? Who would name their baby Feeder? What the hell is wrong with these people? Somebody call child services and get those children away from them immediately. We're dealing with something that is inhuman, but is nonetheless conscious. But he does. But this is the great benefit of you know the show versus the tell. And so, as a way of helping to helping us, the readers, see what Talker looks like. He draws attention through using the passive voice、uh, by having the wire filaments be the focus of that particular sentence. It's weird. It's a weird detail, but it's a fascinating one, and it's proof that if you're a great writer and you know what you're doing, and you know how to use your tools, know how to use all the tools in your literary toolbox, chief among them grammar, then. You can seamlessly, seamlessly.
create something and put somebody into a situation that would be very alien, but make it interesting. And because that detail, wire-like filaments, that's strange, but it's fascinating. It catches your interest, and all of a sudden you're sort of you become more invested in the story. And that I think you know, aside from. The humorous dialogue that comes in the second scene of the story, which is really great, when they find Pusher, this strange poor soldier boy. <laughs> you know, you replay the classic alien abduction scenario in that in that moment, um, and he's able to make it new, able to make it fresh. Because normally, when we do alien abductions, it's close encounters of the third kind, where a human being is encountering, or ET, where. Human beings are encountering an alien for the first time, not the reverse. Let's see the reverse, and let's make the aliens as inhuman and as unhuman and as un- unhumanoid as possible, and make that both interesting and also a great source of comedy. And that's that's Bob Sheckley for you. Hey, funny people! Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next, we meet. Stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes: "Folks, birthing is hard, and dying is mean. So get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time."